I look forward to the day when we are gathered together in glory. And the words of that song will be more true than they've ever been before. We sing, I surrender all. But we also sing humbly knowing that there are things that we are yet to still turn over to the Lord. Things that He is continually pruning out of our lives. That the life of a Christian is not the life of earthly perfection. But the life of a Christian is the life of continual forgiveness and renewal as God is refining us to make us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And He does that as we gather together around this unique table and we feast together on the bread of life, on His Holy Word. And so if you've got your scripture, I want to encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where we'll be studying starting in verse 15 this morning. But before we read the passage of scripture together... I want us to begin our time in God's Word by asking ourselves a question. What is your body? The body is something that we depend upon so much that we might not even bother to take the time to ask this fundamental question. What is your body? What should it be used for? To what extent does your personal, physical body impact who you are and how you live. Is the body merely a vehicle for the soul? Can you as a being exist apart from the physical body that you inhabit? Is it inherently evil, this flesh that you dwell in? Is it inherently good? Or is the body simply neutral? How is the way that I see my physical body going to affect the way that I worship God? As a Christian. Now, we might not have asked ourselves that question so specifically before, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a working understanding of the body. Not everyone thinks exactly the same way about their physical self, that's to be sure. But the prevailing position, the most commonly held attitude towards our body today, is something like this My body is my own. That's how most people would probably answer that question. My body is my own. It is like a small little kingdom that only I am truly in charge of. I might not be the president of the United States or even the mayor of my city, but I have full jurisdiction over my own body. I can do whatever I want with it as long as I don't hurt anybody else. I can mark it. I can pierce it. I can starve it. I can engorge it, I can expose it, I could flaunt it, I could record it, I could sell it, I could drug it, I can manipulate it. Because it belongs to me and to no one else, I can do whatever I want with this body. If I'm not using it to stand in the way of someone else's happiness, then who's going to tell me what I can or cannot do with my physical flesh? It's not amen. And I'll tell you why. There are plenty of examples of people treating their bodies in these ways as a matter of personal preference. But as I said before, not everyone thinks the same way about the body. And if you are a Christian today, if you have surrendered all to Christ, if you put your faith and trust in the Son of God, believing that His righteous sacrifice has saved you from your sin and brought you near to God, then Paul wants you to see that this is a very common view of the body, but it is not compatible with the Christian way of life. We cannot see our own bodies as our own little kingdom that we rule over. 
In the verses leading up to this section, Paul reminded the Corinthian believers that the crucified body of Jesus Christ was raised on the third day after his death, and that all who trust in Jesus will be raised bodily as well. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14 said, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Christ rose again on the third day, but there is a promised resurrection for each of those who trust in Jesus. Our bodies will one day crumble. Some of you are experiencing that this morning in a slow state. Our bodies falling apart, creaking and becoming less usable as they used to be. Our bodies will eventually wear out and die. But for those who are in Christ, there is a promised resurrection. He will raise us up by the same power by which Christ was raised. In fulfillment of what Jesus had prophesied, God did not stay dead. Neither will we if we trust in Christ. Now this resurrection is an indispensable cause for hope for us. When we get to chapter 15 of this letter, the 1 Corinthians letter that we've been studying here for months now, Paul's going to explain in great detail that if Jesus never rose from the dead, if, if Jesus Christ lived an exemplary life, if he went to the cross and died on our behalf, but he never rose from the grave, then we have zero reason for hope. Christ told us that he would rise from the grave. He made the promise that his resurrection would put on display for us his power over sin and death. And so our great enemies, sin and death, are both defeated at the cross of Christ. If Jesus does not rise from the grave on the third day as he said he would, then he is not a keeper of promises and we have no hope. So the truth of the gospel hinges on the reality of Jesus rising bodily from the grave. And it hinges on the hope that believers will one day rise too, according to his perfected will. But a biblical doctrine of the resurrection also sheds great light on the attitude that we should have towards the physical aspects of who we are. The body is not a disposable, insignificant facet of our earthly journey. It is part of our being. It is a part of our creation. It is a part of our identity. It is more than a vehicle. It is more than a tool. It is the means by which our soul and spirit express their being in tangible, physical ways. Now, when we hold to a very base view of the body that sees our physical self as nothing more than a tool or a vehicle, then it will eventually encourage us towards sin. That common way of looking at the body was actually influenced quite a bit by a philosophical stance that was very popular in the time that the New Testament was written. This stance is called Hellenistic dualism. Now, Paul mentioned this just briefly last week, but I'm going to go into a little bit more detail because it has a lot to do with the scriptures we're going to be talking about today. Hellenistic dualism suggests that the body and the spirit, or the soul, are two separate components of man. But one, the spirit is permanent, the other, the body, the flesh, is temporary. One half of man, the spirit, is basically good in the Hellenistic dualism point of view. The other half, the body, the physical dwelling, is either basically evil or completely neutral. So it can go either way. Now this led many people to either hate their body and totally deny it. There was a whole group of people in the Roman society called Stoics who were like this. They despised their physical being, feeling that it was pretty much useless to them and that it only just always pulled them towards sin and was a terrible thing. 
They, they, they denied themselves and tried to punish their bodies as a way of becoming more spiritually mature. So that's what the Stoics thought of this dualism. Or it caused them to see the body as so inconsequential that as long as your spirit was in good shape, you could do whatever you wanted in the body. This would eventually grow into what we, uh, we would come to call Gnosticism, which was a dualistic way of thinking that infected many different thought groups, including, for a time, Christianity. Hellenistic dualism was a state of mind that really defined much of the Roman Empire and how they thought about the physical body. But the resurrection of Jesus, and the promised resurrection of believers, punches a great big hole into that dualistic view of the spirit and the body. If the physical body is not a thing to be shed forever once we leave this world, then we cannot marginalize it. We cannot think about it as something that doesn't really matter. We cannot say that, oh, I'm a spiritual being, and this physical part of me doesn't really matter for eternity, so it doesn't matter what I do in my body as long as I think about my spirit properly. We don't have the option to do that because our body is a part of what God created us to be. So with that in mind, let us read the text and let us allow the Apostle Paul to enlighten us here, to give us insight that he received no doubt from Christ himself through the Spirit, so that we might have a proper view and vision of what it means to think rightly about our bodies. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to start with verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So a lot said there. So let's take a moment and ask that God would lead us through the understanding of this passage by taking a moment in prayer. Holy God, we confess right now the limits of our own intellect. Father, we are trying to discern eternal and holy things, and we are trying to do so with limited experience and with a limited perspective on the world around us and even the bodies within which we live. And so, God, we pray that you would erase from our minds anything that does not belong there, Lord God. Help us to cast aside any doctrine or philosophies that originate in the speculations of men. And let us replace those false truths with the only truth, the truth that we find here in your word. God, I pray that we would do more than just understand better as a result of what we are studying today, but I pray, Lord God, that we would learn to take what we have understood and that we would live according to it, God, that that faith would, would, would become a reality in our obedience to what you prescribe for us today. So thank you, God, for your patience as we learn slowly and we often have to hear things again and again before they finally sink into our hearts. But we know that you are faithful to us. And as long as we are walking with you, you will continue to refine and sanctify our hearts. And we look forward to that even now in Jesus' name. Amen. So within these six verses, friends, the Apostle Paul gives us personal 
as well as corporate reasons why the body is important to God. He starts with a phrase that sounds familiar to us if we've been working through this book of 1 Corinthians together. He says, do you not know? Now, it might be kind of frustrating if the Corinthians are reading this letter to recognize that that is the sixth time out of ten different times that Paul is going to say, don't you know what I'm about to teach you? See, Paul didn't write this letter to give them a whole bunch of brand new, fresh information. Rather, the, the majority of what he writes in this letter is information that they, as followers in Christ, had already been taught, they should be familiar with, and yet they have either ignored, or they have twisted to understand improperly, or they have just forgotten. And so for the Christian, what you do in your body does not only affect your body. That is something we, as followers of Christ, should know. That's something that should, should be in our hearts and minds. What we do with our body doesn't just affect us. Why? Because the body of the believer has been joined to the body of Jesus Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Notice that word members there. The word members there is not the kind of members that you and I are most familiar with. The, the word member is used pretty commonly in our society, but not in this way. We often think about members or membership uh, as in the terms of we are being members of a club or members of a team, or we might have membership that comes with exclusive benefits and rewards with some business. But that's not what this is talking about here. When it says members, Paul is talking about physical members, the integrated physical components that make up a living body, like the organs, like the limbs. So if you got dismembered from Costco, that would mean that you lost your little plastic Costco card, right? That would mean you got to shop at Winco now. No free samples for you. Not that big of a deal, right? But if you got dismembered in an accident, it's a much more painful and traumatic experience, right? It's serious. Now that's the serious kind of membership that we're talking about right now. We're talking about the pieces that make up a real physical body. That's how the Apostle Paul wants Christians to think about their physical bodies as being members, as being integrated and dependent upon the greater body of Jesus Christ. When we have been joined to God by way of covenant, it is not some loose, casual relationship. Our salvation comes with a corporate responsibility to God and a dependence upon Him that affects everything that we do and everything that we are. Here is where we need to have the mindset that Paul is going to expand upon when we eventually get to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. A couple of highlights for future sermons here this morning. When we get to chapter 12, we're going to talk about how the church is rightly described as the body of Christ a group of diverse individuals brought together by the same saving grace that only Jesus can provide for us, and that as His church, we are united together to form in some way the physical manifestation of the grace of God on earth, that we can do the things that He has called us to do and effectively minister to others according to what He has commanded in His Scripture. Jesus is the head of this body. He calls the shots. We are subservient to Him. We each, as members of the body, play a part in what God is doing in and through His church. Not everyone's role is the same. Not everyone's ability is the same. And that's okay. All are important to the working out of God's will in the church. Diversity is an asset 
to this body. Just as you have many members in your body, and each one of them probably does a different thing, all of those things work in harmony together to make you an effective person. So too does the Church of Christ work. We are united together in a functional and enduring way. Now, I want you to remind, uh, rewind your mind a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You remember what they were arguing about in chapter 1? Paul is confronting in the Corinthians in chapter 1 this problem that was dividing the church, that there were several good teachers that had had influence on the Corinthian body of believers, but the people there had wrongly started to align themselves under one particular teacher or another, and they began to treat other people that liked the teachings of a particular teacher as if they were enemies or somebody to debate with and, and argue against, rather than seeing them as true brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians 1.13, these shocking words of Paul, he said, is Christ divided? Or you might even say, is he dismembered? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's basically calling him out. This is not how the church is supposed to look. The church is one body connected together. One kind of blood flows through that body. It is held together with one spirit. So we can't afford as the church to be chopped up into little sections and divisions. Their factions have been complete, should have been completely alien to them if they were viewing the church as this close-knit oneness that God has saved them into. If the church was divided, by extension, the Corinthians were making it seem as though Christ was divided. Now this association, this idea of the church as a body, is not just a symbol uh, or a metaphorical expression. There is also a legal sense in which those who have... <clears throat> trusted in Jesus Christ, are connected to him as part of his body. A legal sense in which those who are part of the body belong to him and have certain rights and responsibilities as a part of that body. So think about these passages of scriptures that I'm about to rattle, rattle off in sequence here. Notice that the scripture tells us we have been sealed with Jesus. To be sealed points back to the ancient ha uh, habit of a scroll being sealed in wax with the signet of a king. And so we have been sealed with Jesus. We have been written down as guaranteed to be His. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So you're a part of His body. You belong to Him. And His kingdom then is rightly your kingdom as well. You are sealed into belonging in that kingdom. We have been promised. We've been promised an enduring relationship with this Christ who has saved us. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? We have a seal of identity with Him. We are promised to belong to Him in an enduring way, in a, in a relationship that will last. We have been united with Jesus by what His death and resurrection accomplishes for us, Romans 6.5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. In some ways that points to baptism. When we are baptized publicly, that shows a, a symbolic representation of our old life that was sinful and tried to be apart from God, that old life is being put to death. When it goes below the body, or the, the water rather, it's showing that that old life is being put to rest, is being buried. 
And then as that believer comes out of the water, it's showing the world that a new life has replaced it. That in Christ we are brand new in Him, united to the body of Christ and alive by the work that He has done. And so we are now also one with God, thanks to the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. As uh, Jesus prayed in John 17, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, my disciples, he's speaking of, his followers, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Think of all these beautiful words that describe our closeness to Christ. It's not just proximity, it's union with Him. That we are in Christ if we are saved by grace. Bound together by the terms of the new covenant. We are united with our Lord. So what an honor it should be for us to be considered part of Jesus' body. We are made holy by association with Jesus. He is our Savior and our identity is now in Him. And we are also made holy by association with the church, which is properly Christ's body here on earth. But as with any meaningful relationship, there are benefits and there are also responsibilities, aren't there? When we do something wicked, we're not just injuring ourselves. When we commit sin and disregard God's law, we're not just injuring ourselves. We are dragging the name of Jesus Christ into the mess with us. Because, friends, we're not independent. We have a constant association with the one who redeemed us, and we have an association with one another because we have all been redefined by his redeeming work. When a Christian united to Christ as a member of his body, the church commits sin in their physical body. It has the consequences that reach far beyond themselves. It affects that greater body. As we return our attention to the situation at Corinth, Knowing this responsibility to the body exists, can there be any way for a Christian to justify such sin as joining the physical body with the body of an unholy prostitute? Now to understand what was going on in Corinth, we need some historical context here. Prostitution, particularly in connection with pagan temples, was a very common practice in Corinth. On a very basic level, Prostitution was a way for the Gentile Corinthians to gratify their physical desires and urges. You might remember the slogan that Paul preached about, the body for food and the food for body, and how the Corinthians were manipulating that phrase to make it seem as though the body has sexual urges, so why don't you just fulfill those sexual urges? That's what the body's for in the first place, right? And Paul says, wrong. You might have lots of freedoms in your own mind, but not all things that are permissible to you are beneficial to you. And so, prostitution was a legalized institution. These Corinthians probably didn't feel like they were breaking any of man's laws to participate in it. But Paul's make it very clear, you're breaking a higher law. You're breaking God's law. This prostitution that was so common in Corinth also carried religious significance in some situations. There were several temples in the city of Corinth dedicated to false Greek gods where offerings were bought forward and given to those Greek gods as a, 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 try to, a way to try to fa- gain favor with these make-believe deities. And so one of the ways that people brought offerings to these temples is that they would come and they would pay money to sleep with temple prostitutes. This act was considered an expression of 
fertility and favor towards the God that they were trying to gain attention from. And it supposedly inspired those false gods to bring blessings upon the person who paid for those services. Now, apparently, some of the Gentile converts in the church at Corinth were saved out of that lifestyle. They were formerly worshiping those false gods, heard the true gospel message, and their lives were changed. But the practice and the habit that they had practiced, many of them probably for a long time, was hard for them to let go of. And so some of them were still going to those temples and spending time with those prostitutes, but then claiming that since the body was temporary, since the spirit is what really matters, that that temple prostitution really wasn't a problem, that they could do it without any guilt or sense of heavy conscience. Now in the next sermon, as we deal with the ways that we can glorify God in the covenant of marriage, Paul's going to talk about how there is a mutual responsibility between the husband and the wife to share themselves physically with their spouse. Christians should have a healthy understanding of what sexuality is because sexual intimacy itself is not a sinful thing. It is a gift of God if it is employed in the way that God has instructed us to employ it. In fact, married couples are commanded to care for one another in that way. But that wasn't what Paul was addressing here in these verses. Here he's looking at a perversion of that kind of gift. As these Corinthians visited these temple prostitutes or even just standard prostitutes, they were violating their marriage covenants with one another and they were blaspheming the name of God. Can you imagine the hardship that this was causing with spouses and the division that it was causing in marriages in the church in Corinth and the mixed message that it was sending to a lost world that saw these Christians who considered themselves holy and set apart from, uh, by God but were behaving in the same sort of licentious behavior that the rest of the pagans were. Now, at first, it might seem ridiculous that the Corinthian Christians were trying to justify such a socially unacceptable practice at all. But is it really all that surprising that people would try to do that? When we, as believers, do not have a proper understanding of the body, then we will attempt to justify many things that the Bible clearly condemns. Aren't we doing something very similar in our own society today? something that's actually very worse than temple prostitution. The shocking example of abortion and its justification in our nation is a great example of this here. We've heard people argue for personal choice and say that if we really respect people, we won't, we won't infringe upon their own little personal kingdom of their body. We'll let them do what they want with their body. We hear that it is helping a young person who's got themselves in a difficult situation and can't afford to raise a child or is not mature enough to do it. We've heard that it is merciful to the baby who would have a hard life if they were born into poverty. Heaven forbid anybody has to overcome poverty. Anybody else here born into poverty? We've heard from people who defend abortion that this is a defense of personal freedoms and that if we insist that abortion be made illegal, then we're infringing upon the American rights of the citizens of this nation. And as we hear these arguments, these empty arguments floated again and again and again, millions of unborn babies have suffered. They've suffered death. They've been murdered because of the twisted mind games that we play with ourselves about our sin. Do you see how important it is to think biblically about our bodies? What does the Ten Commandments say? It says, thou shalt not murder. And that is it. That's the end of it. We can't justify that murder by saying that the child would have a hard life or that the parents trying to raise it would be challenged in a significant way. Rather, 
We should acknowledge what has happened and then do the best we can as the church to support those who are in need of help because they've made mistakes, because they have experienced the consequences of breaking God's commands. Verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. You notice that language there that Paul quotes? A study of this passage would be incomplete if we don't discuss why the act of sexual intercourse is much more significant than our society treats it. Paul is referencing a very important text here, isn't he? He's pointing back to Genesis 2, verse 24. He's pointing back to the very beginning of humanity itself. When God spoke into existence, Adam and Eve breathed the breath of life into them and created them in union for one another. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the, the giving of the gift. When God allows Adam to have a wife, who in some ways is like him, a human being made in the image of God, they are to consummate that covenant relationship with one another by sleeping together, by intimacy. And so that physical act is an act of covenant significance. To share your body with somebody is the most sacred of ways, in the most sacred of ways, is an initiation into a covenant. It is so much more than stimulation or recreation or procreation. It is a promise made with our bodies. You might remember in the Old Testament law that if two people were to fall into sin and sleep together and it was found out, then it should be punished severely or the two people were to, from that point on, continue in a married way because that consummation indicated a promise. It indicated that those two people were with their bodies promising to walk side by side with one another for the rest of their lives. And so people will continue to treat sex as a casual, unimportant thing in so much as we don't see the spiritual significance of the act itself. The Corinthians, perhaps because of their predominantly pagan backgrounds, needed a total rehaul of how they thought of their bodies and how they thought of sexuality as a result. Friends, even before we are saved, before you are identified in Christ, you bear the image of God. There's no other creation that does that. Only human beings. This is the reason why the law of God does not only apply to Christians. It's not like the rest of the world can have their own law and Christians get to have God's law. No, actually, God's law is over all of His creation, right? It applies to everyone because all human beings bear the image of God and have a responsibility to bear that image well. Sadly, we don't. But even before we were saved, we bear the image of God. When God regenerates us, when we are saved, now we, we bear not only the image of God, but we also bear the Spirit of God. No longer are we just a reflection of the glory of God, but now the very glory of God resides within us and emanates out from us. Paul has already pointed out the corporate aspect of the Spirit's presence, that we are a part of one body as members of it. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple? Every time the word you is used there, it's a plural, so he's talking about the church being the temple of God. But here we're told that that even extends to the individual, that you as one Christian are bearing the Spirit of God 
And so you must treat your bodies as a holy thing, not as some wrapper or not as some vehicle or some tool to be used however you want, but as the very vessel in which the Holy Spirit is brought into this world. Now the Apostle is pointing out that individual, uh, individual responsibility that we have to protect and sanctify God's dwelling place, the place where the Holy Spirit resides. So let's understand what's at stake here because we want to be very clear. We don't have the power to defile the Spirit. Amen? We don't have the power to do that. God is unlike you and me. We can be defiled, right? But God is perfect and always has been. God is perfect and always will be. So there is no one who has the power to make him less than he already is. You cannot defile the Spirit, though the Spirit has come to dwell in your heart if you are a believer. If we could defile him, what a fragile God he would be. If we had the power to corrupt God, how could we worship him with any kind of confidence? We can't defile the Spirit but we can grieve the Spirit. We can cause the Spirit heartache. We can do injustice to the image of God in us. And we can defile the way that the, spirit, the people see the Spirit working in our lives. The fact that your body is not only the home for your own spirit, but the home to God's own Holy Spirit means that the stakes are much higher for you, Christian. You can't just do whatever you want. Your actions reflect on the God who has saved you. This awareness of the significance of the body is not presented as a remedy to low self-esteem, by the way. Sometimes you'll hear people say to those who are down on themselves or who they think they need a boost of ego or person, don't you know you're the, spirit of, you're the temple of the Spirit of God? You should think more highly of yourself. That's not really the objective that Paul is pointing at here. He's condemning them for visiting temple prostitutes. So he's not trying to bolster them up. He's saying you should think more highly of the God who dwells with you. He's not trying to bolster our self-esteem or pat us on the back. He's trying to help us to be reverent and holy towards this God who deserves honor and glory and praise in our lives. And so let's see how Paul applies this in a practical sense. Verse 18, flee, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. If you have a high esteem for the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, then take every precaution to keep his house holy, even if that means that you need to flee from sexual immorality. And again, he mentions here sexual immorality. Now he is broadening the scope. He's not just picking on those who go to prostitutes anymore. Sexual immorality includes all kinds of sexual impropriety. It, can, it contains many different ways that man can violate the, the com commands of God. So we're not just picking on those who go to prostitutes here. We're also talking about those who would let their eyes wander to look at pornography. We're talking about those who would have sex outside of marriage in a heterosexual or a homosexual way. We're talking about those who would pervert the ways of God and try to make it seem that it's okay for a man to lie with man or a woman to lie with a woman. This all follows under that umbrella of sexual immorality. And this is the kind of behavior that we should all flee from. Understand, this pulpit is not a place where aberrant sins like homosexuality and prostitution are condemned, but the more common and socially acceptable sins, such as premarital sex or use of pornography, just can be brushed to the side. That's not the case. We all need to be pure in the way that we deal with our physical vessel. Any kind of sexual sin is under fire here. And so what do we do, brothers and sisters? We flee. We flee this kind of corrupt behavior. 
Now, brothers, believe me, there is a time to fight against sin. The, the battle against sin is a diverse one, right? There are times when we go into an area where there's sin is, and we pray hard in that area. There are times when we preach the gospel in places where people are completely closed off to it because the sin has hardened their heart. We confront sin in believers and even in non-believers so that we might point them to the solution to sin, which is Christ. We engage in a world that is trying to justify sin. We debate against philosophies that would say that sin is good and good is evil. So we are to fight against sin. But part of that fight is sometimes fleeing away from sin. How do we flee? How do we remove ourselves from the threat of this temptation that could corrupt not only our testimony in the world, but our own relationship with Jesus. Let me give you a few ways that we might do that. First of all, I would say it begins internally. It doesn't begin with your feet. It begins with your heart. Distance yourself from sin by keeping your thoughts and your desires holy and fixed on Christ. Listen to the words of James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own what? Desire, right? And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Interesting language there, right? When it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So where does it start? It starts when we are lured in, when we are enticed, not necessarily by the temptations outside of us, not necessarily by the fact that there's a brothel down the street or there's somebody wearing clothes that are revealing. It's not there where it begins. It's in here where it begins. And so if you're going to flee sexual desire, flee the thoughts that would cultivate in your mind images, pictures, dreams about the kind of sin that God has told you you are not to engage in as a Christian. We fight that battle internally first. And if you try to apply a whole bunch of external band-aids to this temptation, but you don't deal with the heart, you're going to break through every one of those band-aids. You could put protective software on your computer. You could try to move out of California and go live in Minnesota where it's cold all the time and people got to wear lots of clothes. It's not going to keep you from sexual temptation if the heart is not dealt with first. So we flee by fleeing from the very thoughts that would justify this sin in our minds or that would play around with the idea of one day committing that sin. We flee from those thoughts. To flee sexual immorality. That may mean that we need to physically remove ourselves from environments where temptation will be more than you could be able to handle in your present state of maturity. Let's just face it, friends. Not all of us are at the same place in our maturity, are we? There are times when we go through seasons of particular weakness. There are times when we struggle more than others. As you are younger and you haven't learned much of the Word, it's going to be harder for you to battle certain sins than as you get older. I think Paul talked about this a little bit last week when he was talking about that professor who said, you know what, it, it doesn't... When somebody asked him, now that you're old and gray, right, isn't it great to not have to so struggle with sexual sin? He says, no, I still struggle with the same kind of sins of my youth. But we also see that man wasn't falling into those temptations. Why? Because he had gained wisdom because God was sanctifying him. He had surrounded himself with the kind of people that would keep him accountable and encourage him in the Lord. But there are times when we, in our immaturity, know that we really ought not to put ourselves in a situation where a temptation will prevail or present itself, and that temptation might be too much for us to bear. So that means be careful what you put your eyes on, Christian. That might mean that you don't watch the kind of movies that the rest of your society watches. It might mean that you have to edit the music that you listen to and think of holier things. That might mean that you've got to stay away from the beach or the gym. 
until the Lord makes you strong enough to where that's not a, a draw for you, a temptation for you. It might mean that you, not, you need to be very careful as a married person to not spend time alone with anybody of the opposite sex one-on-one. These are ways that we flee from sexual immorality by preventing ourselves from getting into a situation where those kinds of, uh, those kind of iniquities would occur in the first place. And then lastly, do not dwell just outside of the gate of temptation. I remember as a youth pastor, I, one of the most frequently asked questions from the young people was, well, how far can you go in a dating relationship physically before it becomes sin? You know, are you allowed to hold hands? Can you kiss? What kind of kissing can go on there? And it seemed like young people were always wanting to see, how close can I get to the line before I'm offending the Lord God? And if you dwell just outside of the gate of sin, before you know it, you're going to be on the wrong side of the fence. It's going to creep up on you. Our goal is not to just, just do enough to not be holy, but our goal should be to be like Christ, who gave no place to sin in his life. Our goal should be to be as pure as we possibly can be. Our goal should be to only engage in in sexual activity that is, as the Lord has prescribed to us in His Word, a glory to Him. And that is preserved for the marriage covenant. So that is how we flee from sexual immorality, friends. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, I like the King James Version here. It says, abstain from all appearance of evil. We don't want to dwell right outside of the gate. You don't want to live in, in that sort of environment where sin is right around you. You, you want to be known as somebody who makes no place for sin in their lives. And so abstain from all appearance of evil. When you look at the requirements for a godly elder in the church, which is basically the requirements for a godly man, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you'll see that those men are to be above reproach. So not only do they abstain from sin, but they abstain from situations that make it seem like they may be in sin. They're careful to not give people the wrong idea about how they walk with the Lord. So we must flee from sexual immorality. Begins in the heart, but sometimes that requires steps outside of the heart. Now, how are our sins outside of the body? This is a really difficult little detail here. And having read through several commentators on this passage, it is hard to discern what it means that sexual sins are the only ones that are against the body. Because you might say to yourself, what about gluttony, right? Isn't gluttony a sin against the body? When I overeat to the point where I'm becoming unhealthy and my body is getting out of control. What about drunkenness? Isn't that a sin against the body? Am Am I not assaulting my physical health by drinking excessively? The apostle doesn't say this to make other sins that involve the body seem like they don't really matter. He's not saying that sexual immorality is the only thing that matters to the body. That's not really what he's talking about. Considering how the Corinthians kind of pick and choose to remember what Paul says, I wouldn't be surprised if in further letters he had to clarify that to them. What he's basically talking about here is he's pointing to the fact that the sexual sin that he's really highlighting and focusing on here is a sin that involves the covenantal act of two bodies joining together. This is a violation of the body of Christ because sexual intercourse is itself a fulfillment of covenant promises. Drunkenness is terrible, and we should not commit drunkenness. Gluttony is bad. We need to look, look, look away from that kind of a lifestyle and, and, and be healthy for the Lord. But neither one of those is specifically a violation of covenant in the way that sexual intimacy is. The two become one flesh, and that doesn't happen apart from the sexual union. So we must be particularly careful about the ways that we interact with others in this regard. Paul's message in this passage really boils down to one main powerful point. 
And we see it expressed in verse 20. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is the Holy Spirit's temple. You are no longer your own. You were bought at a price, purchased by the blood of Jesus. As a Christian, I am like real estate for him. I am purchased property. I don't just belong to myself anymore, and so I cannot behave as if I am independent of him, as if I am sovereign over this little tiny kingdom and realm of my own. To some, that might seem offensive. Does God really expect me to stop being in charge of myself when I become a Christian? Does he really expect me to just turn over all sense of control and let him rule me? I'm not going to do that for anyone. Some people are so offended by that concept. But let me clarify to you here. When you become a Christian, you don't stop being your own because you are never your own. You are not free and independent of God even when you are in your sin. In fact, you are a slave to the very sin that he saved you out of. You have not lost, therefore, freedom to secure your place in heaven. Rather, you have traded a wicked master for a loving master. So God is demanding this of us, and it is a reasonable thing for him to demand. We were slaves to our wickedness, and now he has set us free and made us new. Therefore, we must obey what he commands because he is the key to our spiritual life, to our redemption. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. We're going to return to the call to worship that uh, our brother Ross read for us this morning before we began to sing together. I love singing with you, by the way, church. Thank you for being willing to lift up your voices and to sing out praises to our King. Uh, we are all together, the worship team, in a sense. And so when we sing together, we really glorify Him well. But we're going to be in chapter 6 of Romans 15 for this last point we're going to make before we move on to our business meeting. Verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, then you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Stop there for a second. Here the Apostle Paul points out that everyone is basically in one of two camps. And both of those camps are signified by slavery. You are either a slave to sin or through the blood of Jesus Christ and his gracious love, you have been made a slave to righteousness. Every single human being on earth is compelled in one way or the other. You are compelled by your sin or you're compelled by the Savior who saved you into righteousness. Does it sound like that bad of a thing to be a slave to righteousness, friends? I've heard popular songs sing, I'm a slave to love, right? Sounds so romantic and mushy. But what a great, a great truth, a reality, that we are slaves to the righteousness of Christ. I want to be a slave to the righteousness of Christ. I want to be beholden to that kind of instruction. I want to answer to that king. I don't want to be my own king. I want Christ to rule over me. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. You see, it's not just about slavery because we're not made simply servants. We are actually brought into the family of God. So you're not just a slave. You're a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king, fully vetted in the inheritance that he has to give. 
But we don't stop looking at him as our master just because he's given us this great freedom. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, your body parts, your physical dwelling place as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That is Paul's call for us this morning, friends. Each one of us, if we are in Christ, was bought at a price. And what was that price? It was the perfect blood of Jesus himself. We who failed to keep the law of life were destined to destruction. And yet Christ, in his great love for people like us, left the security of heaven to come and take on flesh and dwell with sinners. And he walked in this earth under the same laws that you and I are expected to keep. But he kept them. But he fulfilled them. But he showed the world what it's like to be pure and righteous and holy. None of us could do it. We were all frustrated by the law. We were all captive by the law. But Christ overcame by fulfilling the law, perfectly keeping every precept of God. What a victory in and of itself for Christ to come and take on flesh like we have and to live perfectly. That itself would have been amazing for us. But then he did something even more. He took that perfect body which did not deserve condemnation and punishment. And he allowed it to be punished in our place so that all that he would call out of darkness and into light might have the full wrath of God which should fall upon them, fall upon him. He suffered in our place. So instead of wrath, what do we get from God? If you're in Christ, you get glory. You get forgiveness. You get inheritance. You get a freedom that can never be found by running into the sins of this world. You get a a peace that surpasses understanding. You get a Savior who will never do you wrong. And He leads you today if you are in Christ. Yourself has a spiritual aspect, but it also has a physical aspect. You are a soul with a body. Are you glorifying God with your body today? Please bow your heads with me as we pray. God, we thank you for your grace. Lord, help us to not be so easily swayed into thinking of our physical bodies the way that this world thinks about the physical body. God, let us submit every bit of it to you. I'm so glad that we led into this sermon with that song, I Surrender All. Lord, that's the mindset we need to have and we confess that we fall short of it this morning as we hear these words and know that we too have struggled. We've struggled with sexual immorality. We've struggled with impropriety against the body. We've struggled to be perfectly obedient to your law. And Lord God, if it wasn't for the continual forgiveness of Christ that is ours in him, then we would have no sense of hope. But because you have overcome and conquered all sin, God, we know that you can overcome what we are currently struggling with. And so we turn our eyes to you. We trust in your power over our own. We need you, Lord God. Help us to be obedient to these things that you're calling us out to, Lord. And I pray that the next time we hear these words, when Paul says, do you not know? we'll be able to confidently say, we do know, we learned that, and we've been living that. God, help it to to stick. Help these, these words of the apostle be ever on our heart and in our mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.